Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Bringing community mental health to you, raising awareness and challenging stigma. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm. Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. Hello and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR, 8.55am, 3CR Digital Radio and 3cr.org.au online. My name's Zach, and from the Brainwaves team today, we have in the studio Steph and Alana, and they're going to be talking to to Robert Robert Martin today. Uh, so I'll hand over I'll hand over to you guys. Um, so thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, what was your child like? Uh, childhood like growing up? Well, before Before we get into that, I actually just want to say thank you to you guys for actually putting a show on like this because there's not enough forums that enable people to talk and there's a huge stigma mm. about talking about mental health and so kudos to you guys yeah, it's definitely. Um, for doing that. Now, it's, it's funny, over my life period, I've seen many, many psychologists and psychiatrists and the one thing that they never asked was about my childhood and one mm. of my biggest issues is that we get labelled without trying to find out what happened and it took me until I was in my mid-20s to realise that maybe my childhood had something to do with it. Mm. And so I was born into a very poor family. Um, after six months, they sort of dumped me at home. They left me on my own where neighbours came to take me. Um, the neighbours had me for six months. They had their own child and so couldn't have me anymore. So they took me up to the local police station saying, we can't have this child. I ended up going back to my parents who used to neglect and beat me. I had an older sister who ended up in hospital with a fractured skull. Mm. And she was, you know, two and a half. And so that's the sort of upbringing I had up until I was adopted. I was adopted at three and a half. I remember meeting my parents. So, you know, great people. But I came pretty damaged because in the 70s when I was, you know, as a kid, when you used to attach yourself in the adoption or the foster care, they used to move you. And Mm. so they used to say, hey, this kid's becoming a little bit too needy. So let's move him on. And so I ended up to my parents, you know, who were great, great people who couldn't have their own kids, uh, ended up there completely damaged and really had a troubled upbringing from there. And so I was expelled out of uh, Bible school. This was, I must have been about seven. Uh, I was expelled from grade two primary school, uh, throwing stones through the, uh, the primary, the pri, um, the, you know, well, the boss of the school, whatever his name is, mm. the, uh, through the window. And then expelled in year seven, nine, and ten, and so I had some massive issues. Uh, and so childhood, I don't have a lot of you know great memories, uh, mainly just trying to survive. And I actually, I always thought that I would have been dead by the age I was twenty-one. And so that sort of gives you an understanding of what my childhood was like. Great parents that adopted me mm. tried everything, tried everything. Took me to numerous specialists, psychologists, psychiatrists. Threw me to Sydney. Uh, flew me to Sydney to find out if I had brain damage and so I had the brain scans you know all of these things to say what's wrong with this kid rather than trying to figure out what had actually happened 
Mm. I can imagine. Yeah, thank you. I can imagine, like, as especially as a child, that that would just have been really overwhelming and just like not knowing what was going on and like well, yeah, not because your you, you need to attach kids, kids, people, human beings. We need to actually attach. We need to have a reason for living. Mm. Um, but as a child, because you're labelled, you're labelled a. You know, someone that's got depression, or you're labelled someone that's got anxiety. Yeah. You're labelled you've got ADHD. You're labelled that you have all of mm. these issues. Um, no schools want you either. This is after you've been adopted. No school wants you. I spent my 17th birthday in Tirana, which is a you know boys' jail. Uh, at 15, I was in Baltara. So I mean, I'm going through this whole sphere of people not wanting you, mm. but you don't realise it until yeah. you're lashing out. Yeah. Uh, so it was, you know, it, it was pretty tough. On that note, what you were um, saying about. When you started to see various like psychologists and psychiatrists and having feeling like there were labels just being thrown at you, what were um, some of those diagnoses that you received, and what what have you what various diagnoses have you received over the years? So I think manic depression was the first one, yeah. and, that, and that's when someone you know they've changed the labels. The mm. labels are mm. still there, but they've changed them essentially. So you know manic manic depression bipolar is you know you're up one day, you're down the next, um, and I remember going through that stage. Uh, also being anxiety is something in fact that I got labelled with not long ago because I didn't realise I was suffering it this was happening during my work career um, but ADHD was a huge one and I started on a, on a medication which was you know dexamphetamines now as a, as a 12 or 13 year old you know on dexamphetamines at school popping these pills and you know they're designed to make you concentrate but what they don't do is they don't teach you how to regulate yourself mm-hmm. uh, and so a lot of those labels I accepted up until maybe a few years ago mm-hmm. and so i sort of went through life thinking that you know i have a brain problem i have you know basically a brain damage uh, and there's no nothing that i can do to fix this and so you go through life thinking that and it's not yeah. not the thing to do we shouldn't label these kids you know all of these different things mm-hmm. so yeah um i know we touched on this earlier um but about medication um how has medication played um within your mental health um and could you tell us a little bit more about um i guess your experiences with being medicated so i remember first of all going on dexamphetamine i think they worked for a while but you know there can be a placebo effect there can be different effects but then after a while you need more Mm -hmm. now this is a speed so you know you need more as you go i was then on uh, lithium uh back then i think it was you know relatively new for kids and so i was on lithium having to have blood tests on a regular basis. Mm. Well, when that started to stop, I mean, I used to start self-medicating myself. And Southern Comfort was something that I was drinking when I was, you know, 14 at school and, you know, cigarettes and, you know, those sorts of things. So you, you find one medication, you need another one. Yeah. Uh, and so do I agree with medication as a whole? It probably did save my life. Um, I went off medication, I think I told one of you guys, about 12 weeks ago. Uh, yeah. You know, I thought I don't need medication anymore. Well, two weeks ago, I went back on it mm. because obviously yeah. I still need uh, yeah. some help when I'm still trying to figure myself out. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't remember a time, you know, for the last 35 years not being on a medication mm. and yeah. it becomes frustrating. And then, you know, there's, you've got to, they change your medication when, you know, they say, oh, there's a new one out. This might be better for you. And then there's a massive change that it happens. It does knock you, it knocks you around your mm. system. Uh, but the, one of the biggest things that I feel that it's, it, it takes the, um, your sharpness away, I yeah. believe, because yeah. it dulls you down. But the other thing it also does is it, it doesn't teach you to regulate yourself. And so mm. when you're starting to feel certain things, well, they just give you another tablet. Yeah, that, That's not what I, I think I wanted. 
Yeah, well, so. medication is um, like quite interesting because my sister does um, have medication she has for um, her mental health, and you really notice when she doesn't take it. Yeah. And like for me, being her sister, like I can really see how medication has, well, not necessarily improved, but it truly made her life better. And like you know, good. Just simple things like getting out of bed, you know. Yeah. Um, so I and, guess, and those things I agree with. Yeah. But what I don't agree with is, is when people give them the medication, they don't give them the other tools. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. my biggest my biggest issue is the fact that I mean, you guys asked what my childhood was like. Yeah. I never had a psychologist, mm-hmm. and I was in some of the best institutions that uh, Melbourne had. I mean, my parents had some money. I went to private schools, mm-hmm. so I went to Kerry Grammar and Trinity Grammar. I got expelled from both. But they put me into a place called Pathways Adolescent Centre. And they were doing drugs, but they never asked me what happened. And the yeah. fact that I was neglected as a child, beaten as a child, left to my own advice, all of those things, they never rectified. Um, but so I agree with you in a way. I had to go back on my tablets two weeks ago, mm. two, three weeks ago, because I started to have uh, rages and anxiety. I couldn't leave the house. Yeah. Certain things would, would set me off. And it was such a disappointment because mm-hmm. the medication, when I first went off, I was feeling great. And then all yeah. of a sudden, you know, I'm this outgoing sort of person. I couldn't leave the house. Mm-hmm. And then I was rude to my partner. You know, I wasn't the dad I wanted to be around my kids. And mm-hmm. so absolutely medication does have a place, but it has to be regulated with helping with tools to, yeah. to help, you know, us survive. Yeah, I can't imagine, like, being given medication and, like, people not even asking how your childhood was or... Not even mm. like just um, like a psychologist, like not knowing your past, not knowing anything about you, and then giving you medication, yeah. saying, "Oh, yeah, this will change everything." But, but this I, is what they I do. really feel like I just can't even think how yeah. Like, yeah. you would feel. Well, I feel robbed. Yeah. I, feel, I feel robbed because 100%. I look. I, I do a lot of reading on psychology and tablets and all of those things, and I, I've been on a self journey trying to fix myself. Mm. And I'm really upset with the, you know, the academia, first of all, with a lot of the, the tests that they do is, are run by pharmaceutical companies. But also some of the simplest psychologists not saying, what happened with your childhood? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't raised in a good family. Mm, but yeah. not one of them ever asked me that. It's just as simple as just asking one question. And what happened could, to you? It could change so much. It could yeah, change it everything. It, especially because it it's such a, I mean, childhood and adolescence is such a vital moment in someone's life in i mean for everything but especially for like mental health and and we're social beings so it's just ignoring ignoring that part of it is just yeah but from the the first three and a half years of your life this is when you're really starting to define Mm. who you're going to be and you've got your life skills yeah um and you know unfortunately so many kids or so many parents don't do the right thing for their kids they don't all do it on purpose but they weren't given the right tools how to bring a child up. Exactly. And so we need to start asking what's happened. Yeah, it's um, a generation. Rather, rather than, because we label and we'll say, what's wrong with this kid? Oh, he's got issues, not what has happened. Mm. And so, you know, hopefully people will start asking yeah. a little bit more often. Um, related to that, how how aware was your um, were your parents of your mental health kind of experiences and what, what has their role been within your mental health journey? So, so my parents growing up, yeah. they were you know, they were very, very good. They didn't have the tools to, to cope with me. Yeah. So they tried everything. They tried talking and that wasn't going to work. I got the strap. I got the wooden spoon. You know, I got, mm. I got all sorts of things. I, in fact, tried to kill my father when you know, I was about 12. Mm. Did I really mean to do it? Probably not. But he and I weren't talking the way we should have been talking. 
um, and the doctors were saying that, you know, call the police, and so the police would come. You know, and then there's the CAT team. The CAT team are experts at dealing with people like me, but they put you away somewhere, but they don't then find out what actually happened. You get put in the too hard basket. But So my parents always used to say, don't worry, Rob, you'll be okay. You've got an excuse. And so my parents basically labelled me saying, you have a brain deficiency, you have mm. a brain disorder, uh, you know, you just have to deal with it. Make sure you stay on your medication, make sure you do this. Uh, and, you know, looking back, I wish they hadn't done it like that. But they tried their best. Mm. But it wouldn't be easy to have, uh, you know, adopt a child at you know, three and a half, four that came with, with these issues. It mm. would be really, really tough. And it's really difficult for, I mean, I can imagine for your parents and for parents in general and for people in the community who aren't given those tools or that information yeah. and they don't know how to um, communicate about mental health or like how to understand um, that it is a social issue or it is, a, it mm. is not just a brain issue. Well, kids want to feel safe. Kids growing up, uh, a lot of the, the studies now, they're actually asking, did you feel safe with a certain person growing up? And they find a lot of the people that have ended up you know, in adolescent homes never felt safe with somebody. Mm. And so a child needs to feel safe. But kids basically want to be listened to, like we do. I mean, we mm. all want to be listened to. And if you've got a th- two-, three-, four-year-old, yeah, they're hard work. Mm. But if they're trying to reach out to the parent and the parent is looking at the TV continually or the phone or telling their child to shut up, I'm too busy, I'm too this... And then they wonder, you know, when they're in their 15s, 16s, 20s, that they're, they're lashing out. These are the reasons. Mm. These are the reasons. Um, and it's very, very hard to lose sight of that. Uh, but it's a matter, again, of just, you know, figuring out what's happened. Mm, so, Did you have a lot of, like, support when you, you were, like, an adolescent, when you were a teenager, um, like, with, like, acting out and stuff at school? No, uh, so at, at Kerry Grammar, my mother knew the headmaster, and so I, you know, had a little bit extra cushion yeah. room. I was uh, expelled at the end of year ten, though, yeah. uh, and so I went to Trinity Grammar, where then again I was expelled. And I get it; you can't have a kid doing what I was actually doing, so I actually understand yeah. what was happening. But I also, looking back, I understand that the, the, the teachers had no idea what to do. But I had a school teacher, um, a Mr. Greenwood at Kerry, who I have fond memories of because I remember him. You know, I, I picked a fight with him in class and he threw me through some double doors, took me downstairs. He was the, you know, the coordinator for Year 9. Uh, and he asked me, he said, what's going on? And I remember breaking down in his room. I was this big, tough kid. But I remember to this day, and I get goosebumps thinking about it, he actually cared and he said, what's going on? And that made a big difference to me for a while. It didn't make enough of a difference because I suppose there's you know one one teacher for so many students um, at Trinity Grammar again they weren't capable. I ended up going to Murrumbina High again they weren't capable. Yeah. Uh, I suppose what people do is with these sorts of kids is that they just try and stop them doing damage. Yeah. I think that's sort of what happens. Yeah. Um, and you know I think that's becoming less. So yeah. I don't blame. Uh, the schools. I mean, I blame more of the the doctors and those people giving medications. Yeah. I, I blame those people for yeah. not doing what I believe their due diligence is what they should have been doing. Yeah. Um, so, has your family um, like been helping you constantly, like through like your life as you get as you've gotten older? So I had a very, or have, uh, we're not together anymore, but I have a, uh, a wife that was very, very good, very, very good, understood yeah. me, understood where I came from. Yeah. We have a lovely daughter, Olivia, who uh, 
is now nine, things started to go off when I had my second daughter because I had never had a good memory of a family. All of a sudden, the second child became a real family and things started happening to me that I didn't realise what were happening. I started not being able to really communicate with my wife. I started to lash out. I was drinking a whole lot. I was doing far too many drugs. And I mean, looking back at this time, I still, I sort of understand why, but I don't. But looking back that I had never enjoyed a Christmas, a birthday, all of these things since I was forever. And then, you know, when, when the one daughter was there, things were okay. The second daughter, I felt crushed. I felt smothered. When you have another child, you start to have the family, extended family, want to come and talk to you. And I felt completely smothered and I couldn't cope with it. And I used to say to my wife, you know, I'm feeling I can't cope. I'm not going to, you know, if your family come over, I'm going to leave. You know, sometimes I'd come over, I'd get really, really drunk, uh, you know, make a fool of myself. But I didn't realise at the time what was actually happening uh, to the point where I, I did damage, too much damage. And so you know, I'm not with my wife anymore. We have a very good relationship. Um, I have three daughters. I have a 25-year-old who she and I are very close. And we talk about stuff. Um, and so my upbringing, I mean, you can't blame everything on your past. You know, a lot of people like to do that. I don't do that. But I understand that it's affected it. Mm. And so my wife and I have a, a relationship now where we sort of understand. Um, I've, you know, with a very, very good partner now who has seen sides of me, you know, trying to, to deal with it. Uh, and so I must say that they have been very, very good. Yeah. Very, very good, you know, in a very, very difficult situation. Mm. Um, so you've been involved in the corporate world for quite a while now, I know, and I just, I'm interested in to how this has impacted on your mental health, how that kind So of I, I've been lucky enough to own my own business. Yeah. So I own a, a couple of small businesses that, uh, in fact, I don't work in them anymore. I, uh, my daughter, my eldest daughter runs it, which is great. Um, but I, it gave me empathy and a real big understanding of what staff members would go through. I had days where I would be as happy as Larry on my way to work. Something would happen, and I, I wouldn't always know what it is, where I wouldn't go to the office. And so I would do a U-turn, go home, or I'd go and hide in the back streets, or something would happen. I was lucky enough to not have to go. Lucky enough. I don't know how a lot of people these days that suffer from a mental health either have to make up excuses to go mm. or they have to um, just not turn up and get sacked. Uh, the corporate world, it's pretty hard to talk about mental health. It's still a real big stigma towards it. Yeah. Um, I've tried to make my business or businesses over the years be open and available for mental health. I had a meeting with my staff about three years ago uh, and I sat them down and I sort of was open book with myself and, you know, to say that it can happen to, to different people. I want to, you know, lead by an example. I do have these issues. I don't know why. I'm trying to fix them. If people have similar issues, my door is open. Mm. And it's amazing if you talk about it, how many people go, I know someone yeah. or I've been exactly like that. I can't believe it. And, you know, the, the biggest thing is not talking. The Definitely. biggest thing, and so I didn't want people within my office walking around hiding, hiding the fact that they're either you know suffering from a massive anxiety, you know, or they've been abused in the past, and things are you know starting to surface. And so the corporate world can be very, very, very harsh, mm. but it can also be very, very good, and hopefully, uh, you know, things are, are starting to change. Yeah, and that's really great that you 
did set up your businesses like that because oh, it I is, didn't always at the start, yeah, but yeah. yeah. At least, I mean, even just having that as a as, as something to work towards or something that is, you know, in the process mm. of <laughs> becoming more, you know, becoming more of a open, opening up more of a dialogue, I guess. Well, I mean, we spend so much time at, at the office. Mm. We spend so much time yeah. at the office. And if we go into the office and we're feeling terrible or we can't be open, we can't be honest, what's the point of being there? And I also know that an office that is a happy office, you're always going to have happy clients, happy customers and all of those mm. things. And so if we can have the open dialogue, as you say, uh, it's, a, it's a much better place. You're going to be more profitable too. Yeah. So. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really great because like, I know so many places that I've worked and like, they think mental health is just an excuse. And like, just if they if we actually had support for mental health, and you could like call up and say, "Look, I'm not having the greatest day today. I don't think I can come in," and they would just be like, "Oh no, that's okay." Like that, I can't. Like that would be amazing. Well, that, that, that's but a policy you, we do have. Yeah, but you li- like at my work, you literally have to lie because if you're not physically mm. sick, you're not actually sick. Yeah, and that's. Makes and me and so we all angry. have days where yeah. we need it. I mean, you, yeah. don't, you don't necessarily have to suffer from a mental illness to yeah. actually be jack of stuff, hmm. you know. Mm. And, and I think people should also realise that, I mean, if you're feeling like you did to go to work yeah. and you don't want to go there, you're not going to do anything anyway. Yeah, exactly. You're yeah. going to bring the people down next to you. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be here. I mean, and it's, and it's mm. contagious. And then you've got to put so on a front point? because people don't want to look at you sad or mm. your yeah. manager's like, no, you've got to smile, you've got to be happy and stuff. And yeah, so it doesn't work. But yeah. that, unfortunately, is the majority of workplaces. Yeah. That's, the, you know, unfortunately the way it is. Well, hopefully it'll start changing. <laughs> hopefully. One day. I mean, fingers the, the, crossed. There's a lot more people talking about it. So, yeah. Uh, you know, fingers crossed that'll actually happen. Yeah. Um, confidence and loudness can often be a front for what's really going to go, what's really going on inside. Do you think that everyone around you can see your struggles or have an idea of like what you're actually feeling? So people, people that know me now that know that I have had these particular issues would look back and go, ah, maybe. I was always the guy that was getting pretty drunk. I was always the guy, I would be a 70% no-show rate to parties, 70%. I'd either turn up late and leave early um, because I knew that if I am a, I am a confident person, I do speak in front of the staff. I've always actually been a sales trainer and a motivator. And so when I'm in the right headspace, people would never, ever suspect that I would be like this. They would never suspect that I can't leave the house sometimes. They would never suspect that I've been suicidal, you know. Um, And it's a very, very scary place to be. And it's a place that I believe people, you know, should talk about more often. Um, my Christmas parties at the office, I was a 50% show rate, you know, I mean, I own the business, but all of a sudden I couldn't go to these days. And so people now looking, say, they sort of go, yeah, maybe he did actually have mm. these issues and his front was there, but we didn't see him a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I could pick, you know, again, pick and choose my moments. Um, so, you know. Uh, do you think that the stigmatisation of mental illness has played a role in your mental health recovery? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, would, would it have changed if we were talking about mental health in my teenage years? Probably not, because I would have continued on saying I'm this tough guy, mm. and I'll do what I want to do, I'm not scared of anything. Um, but it is changing, and I, and I think the stigma, stigmas do make it very difficult for people to talk about it. Definitely. Because it is frowned upon. Mm. People are either going to say that you're making it up, as you said mm. before, or get over it, 
man up, all of these sorts of things, they don't help. Yeah. They do not help, yeah. and it's more common than a lot of people think that it is. Um, and if there's people listening out there, talk about it. Yeah. Part of the reason that I'm talking about it today is twofold. One is that it liberates me. Yeah. It really liberates me to be able to do that. There's people that you know listen, and I'll send my podcast to the you know the people I know. I'm liberated. I don't mm. have to hide anything anymore. Yeah. And so you know, I think more people should do that. And the second part that I want to do this is that it might enable people to speak up themselves mm. and feel liberated. Definitely. Um, just lastly, um, before we finish, um, what are you um, currently embarking on for your next um, mental health? Journey? So I, I decided last year, late last year, that I'd had enough of the corporate world. Um, yeah. I want to go into mental health. Um, all the professionals I saw over the year, I used to ask, you know, can you empathise or sympathise with where I'm feeling today? And I could tell that most of them could not. You can read it in a book but you can't feel it unless you've felt it. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I want to do is to go into the mental health sphere. And if, if that's ha- helping adolescents yeah. you know, going through issues, uh, I would like to be able to you know, be at the other side of the table to actually be able to help. We're put on this planet, I think we should help other people. And the more that you help others, the better you actually feel. Mm-hmm. And so if I can do that as a, you know, as a job, I would, I would love to do that. So yeah. that would be me. Great. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Robert. Robert Martin, it's been great to have you on the show. Um, love, to, love to hear more, but unfortunately out of time today. Um, uh, you can find more of our shows at our website, brainwaves.org.au or on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au or as also on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday at 5 for another episode of Brainwaves on 3CR. We'll see you then. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.